everybody to www.ironradio.org. This is Lonnie Lowry. I am an exercise physiologist and a sports nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hi, people. I'm Robert Fortress Fortney. I'm a journalist, uh, former editor at Muscle Mag International, former bodybuilder and powerlifter. And uh, hey, guys and girls, this is Charles Staley, author of Muscle Logic, creator of Escalating Density Training, and I'm a master's level weightlifter. Uh, this is Phil Stevens, a uh, national uh, record-holding powerlifter and founder of LiftForHope.org. Sweet. And today we have a, a special guest, uh, Lou Schuler. Uh, Lou is a longtime fitness and wellness industry journalist. He's he's worked with both print and web media. Um, I've seen him at conferences. I've seen him a lot online, and um, he's currently an edit- has an editorial role at www.tmuscle.com. And actually, there's much more, and I'll just leave that to you, Lou, to, uh, you know, kind of fill in any gaps. Well, there's a lot of gaps in there. I mean, you forgot you forgot uh, that that I've I've never set a record powerlifting. I've never competed in bodybuilding. I've uh, <laughs> I, I I never quite uh, uh, got to the to the novice level of weightlifting, much less master's level. So uh, there's there's yeah, there's a whole lot on that resume. All right then. Well, all right. Well, all right. Seriously, I also write books. Oh yeah, you know I should have mentioned that, of course. Um, multiple books. Um, actually, Lou has Lou and Charles actually are, are two of the few authors that I've actually read fitness-related books, like lay books. You know, so it's worth checking out. Oh, gee, uh, the pressure's on now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's start if you can. Just maybe if uh, Lou, you could just tell people. You know uh, about yourself. Like recently, what are your interests? You know, uh, whatever you feel is important about your background or what you've been up to lately. Um, well, lately for the past year, I've been working for TeamMuscle.com, as you said, as as uh, editorial director. I work with I work with TC and and Tim and all the great staff over there. Um, before that. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a lifelong journalist. I was just one of those regular guys who worked for newspapers, magazines, um, up until uh, 1992 when I was a uh, I was a grad student for creative writing at USC. Answered a blind ad in a newspaper and ended up with a job at Men's Fitness Magazine. I was there six years. Uh, moved over to Men's Health. I was uh, fitness director there. Began writing books. My first book was called The Testosterone Advantage Plan. Um, also wrote. Um, with with multiple co-authors, I also wrote the uh, Home Workout Bible. I wrote the Book of Muscle with Ian King. Uh, and then Alan Cosgrove and I wrote The New Rules of Lifting. And Alan, Cassandra Forsyth, and I wrote The uh, New Rules of Lifting for Women, uh, both of which just came out in paperback in January. And, and uh, that's uh, I think that gets us up to date. Um, that's a lot. That, I mean, that kind of stuff together with now. When you were working with uh, like Rodale, um, did, I can't remember. Did you do a lot of stuff with like uh, the men's fitness magazines, like lots of articles and stuff, or, or was it uh, mostly editorial stuff? Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's one and the same. Um, whether your name's on the article or not. Uh, when you edit, you're basically rewriting it because magazines like that, they've got a particular editorial voice and people from the outside never really, never really get that voice. Uh, and even if they did, nobody can predict how long an article is going to be by the time it shows up in the magazine. So, you know, it's not like a newspaper article where you just chop it off at the bottom when you run out of space. If, if you have to chop a third of the article, 
Uh, you probably have to re- rewrite substantial parts of it, uh, which may be an article that you've rewritten completely to begin with. So the editors at those magazines are writing everything you see in the magazine. I mean, you pick up a copy of Men's Health, and there's six or eight guys who have written every, almost every word in that magazine. There might be 20 or 30 different bylines in there, but, it, but it's a handful of people who have actually written the words that you read. So whether, you're, whether your name is on the article as the author uh, or whether you're just in the masthead as, as, as an editor, um, you're, you're writing the thing. Yeah, that must sound familiar to you, Fortress. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Rod, you're right. Yeah, I'm not telling you guys anything you don't know. So <laughs> that's just one of the things that Rob used to bellyache about. Well, and rightfully so. I mean, ghostwriting stuff, especially from professional athletes. You know, I just remember that, you know, constant like, profanities flowing out of his office and stuff from even early days, like from uh, when we were doing that peak training journal and, and magazines like that, because the, the amount of, of work. And I remember something you just said, Lou, really struck me that when you said there are six or eight people who are writing everything in a magazine, there have been times where Rob and I even though our names weren't on it, you know, we, literally 90, 95% of everything in that magazine we had actually penned, you know. In Peak Train Journal, it was oftentimes, it was, uh, yeah, predominantly just Lonnie and myself. Um, certainly at other magazines, um, the going way we would do things a lot would just be, you know, it's a, it's a lot easier just to call these guys and say, hey, you know what, we're going to do a bicep thing on you. What did you do in your last biceps workout? They'd prattle on for five minutes and then you just take the nuts and bolts of that and write an article around it oh sure yeah i mean the the um i don't think the people reading those magazines ever had any idea that these weren't exactly the workouts that these guys do because i assume they're walking into the gym and they're doing whatever they feel like doing that day so you're just kind of estimating based on what they told you they did and then you clean it up a little bit so you know, if yeah. the guy remembers doing 40 sets of something followed by 50 sets of something else, you can kind of assume he didn't really do that. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so Lou, what do you what do you think? Are, are there big differences, or are there any differences with the uh, like the online kinds of editorial stuff that you do versus what you did in print? Um. Well, there, there's some there, there's there's some crossover. Uh, there's certainly there's certainly a formula. There's certainly a structure. Um, it, it's a lot easier to explain the structure online because you know if if an article needs to be four thousand words, it can be four thousand words. Whereas in a magazine, if you assign an article and tell somebody he he needs to write fifteen hundred words, and then you know the art director tells you that you've actually got eleven hundred to work with. You know, then you're going to have to get in there. It's going to be it's going to be a very different article from what he turned in. Whereas in um, in 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 Team Muscle, you know, if you work with a writer, you can pretty much get what the guy wanted to say, and you can still make it look like it belongs uh, in a public in a you know in a in a in a media outlet like that. You know, it doesn't stand out. So that's the that's the goal. When a reader goes to a website, same as when he picks up your magazine. The, the the articles can't all look like they came from the exact same word processor, but they but they have to look like they fit. You know, they're they, what one you know you can't run 500 words one day and 10,000 words the next. You, you know, you can't write something that looks like it should be on Bodybuilding.com one day and something that looks like it should be in the Atlantic Monthly the next. You know, there has to there has to be some continuity there. Yeah. So yeah. that's that's the one area where it's where it's similar. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense with the whole layout and everything. Uh, well, you know, you know, getting even, even 
more strict now. I don't know if you agree with me there, uh, Lou, about that um, concept of just didn't you know uh, making sure that you only mandate a certain you know a certain writer does a certain amount of words and being quite strict with that kind of formula. Uh, who, who, you mean publications in general or as a team of Um No, hard co- hard copy publications. Um, it seems like the reins are being tightened a lot on those types of things as far as because uh, art direction and so forth seems to be gaining kind of um, priority at a lot of publications and so forth. So there seems to be a lot more reins. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Players. Editors have totally lost that struggle because the, because the advertising community has sided with, uh, with the art directors. So they want... They want magazines to look a certain way. They want pictures to be a certain size. They want certain colors used. Uh, they want, they're, you know, they're looking for the right environment for their for their print ad. Yeah, that's and I mean. when they get the right environment, you know, the the you know the research is showing that um, that print ads do work a little bit better than online ads um, because of that. Because the advertisers are able to demand. Um, Certain, you know, certain environmental parameters for their ads. So their ads always look like they belong. I was, I was shocked. Uh, I hadn't, I've been, I'd been pretty busy the last couple months. And even though I subscribed to Newsweek, I hadn't really picked it up and, and looked at their new redesigned format. And when I looked at it, I was just shocked at how difficult it is, how long you have to stare at the page, um, to figure out the difference between the ads and the editorial pages. I mean, there's no, you know, there, there, there's, there's no consistency of, you know, whether the left hand's going to be the ad page or the right hand, uh, or whether they're going to have two-page spreads here. You know, you just, you have these ads in, in these odd places where you don't expect them to be. And they, you know, it, it takes a couple seconds of looking at the page to distinguish between the ad and the editorial. And I can guarantee you that things like that don't happen by accident. That's, uh, I, I forget what conference it was, but one of them where I presented, um, I went through and showed spread by spread exactly how I was using fitness magazines as my main example, but I was showing spread by spread how close the editorial pages align with the adjacent advertisements. So that's why the editors have lost. Uh, the art directors have won. They get their big pictures. They get their big graphics. And the, you know, the news hole, the, the, the amount of <clears throat> copy uh, that editors can put in there shrinks, which of course is a disservice to the readers because big pictures don't really help a reader who's picking up a magazine hoping for service, hoping to learn something better. You've lost all the space that you used to have to be able to explain how to do things. So most of your space is taken up with selling them on the wonderful thing you have. There's, you know, the headlines are bigger, the subheads are bigger, the display copies bigger, and the space for actually explaining what the person is supposed to do just shrinks and shrinks and shrinks year in and year out. Yeah, definitely. You know, this is similar, Rob. I'm thinking more about you and I have been in positions where the um, the powers that be behind a publication, they literally lost track of what was the worth of editorial content at all. And the entire uh, publication that we were expected to produce was essentially a vehicle to push a product or, or do something else. And Despite the arguments about, hey, you know, maybe readers pick this up, they actually want to get something out of it, doesn't even cross some of these guys' minds. It's it's kind of mind blowing. Oh yeah, and and that that whole trend towards the, the these magazines becoming more, um, you know, predominantly it's catalogs it has uh, reached an apex, I think, several years ago. But it, it's that that trend certainly continues. Yeah. 
before we go on, I want to ask Lou uh, one thing before, because the topic of the day is is almost starting to intertwine with this a little. But Lou, I'm curious about your uh, like your training background and I don't know training philosophies. What got you started? You know, with like the weights, why you're interested in it, just kind of basic personal stuff like that, I guess. Well, I, I was 13 years old. I was skinny, I was weak, I was slow, and I wanted to play sports. And I was literally, in any context, I was the skinniest, weakest, and slowest who actually wanted to play sports. Now, the kids who, you know, the 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 kids who didn't want to play sports, yeah, I guess there were certainly guys out there who were who were worse off than me. But I really wanted to play, loved sports, and wasn't any good. Um, so uh, uh, when I was 13, my older brother bought a set of weights at Sears, and, and I began working out with that. Um, and that, uh, I, I don't think since then, which was, uh, I'm 52 now, so, you know, uh, somebody do the math here. Um, all those years, I don't think I've ever gone more than a couple months without working out. That said, I don't, I don't think I had any idea what I was doing until I was in my, in my late 30s and began to realize that there was a systematic way to go about this. Yeah, it's it's that's such a it seems like a, a similar thread amongst a lot of us. I started lifting when I was 13, you know, and maybe it was a little bit for sports, but I, I totally get that. I remember benching off my bedroom floor like the old plastic weights filled with cement benching off the floor. There's a range of motion for you. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah that's what we had. We, we had we had some uh, metal weights that were covered with plastic and some of the you know the the uh the you know the cement weights and and they began to crumble and leak through the through the cracks in the plastic which our mom wasn't happy about but I'll tell you what I discovered unbalanced load training that way because you know as 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 a, as the cement began to leak out of those weights you know you never knew which you know you never could get a balanced load on that bar that's a that's a glasses half full approach right there <laughs> <laughs> They don't understand all this stuff. I remember Platts once telling me that when he started, he you know he would be benchy. He, he understood the concept of of pressing you know to arm's length, but he couldn't understand you know how these guys in California were doing it because you know he'd be on the floor and his his elbows got in the way until he actually saw a, a gym with a, a you know a bench and realized that's how it was done. Yeah, you know I, I I'm like I said I'm 52 now, and when I started lifting, nobody had a bench. Um, I can't remember, my, my brother eventually bought a bench sometime when we were both in high school, but nobody had benches. I mean, you, you know, the standing shoulder press was the, was the exercise you kind of judged yourself on. We had no idea what kind of lower body exercises to do. I mean, if you wanted to squat, you had to pick it up, pick up the bar, put it on your shoulders. Um, so we did, you know, so it was mostly shoulder presses and curls, as I recall, <laughs> which was, uh, I, I remember I used to do, uh, when I was in high school, I used to do pull-ups um, for uh, forearm development, and 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 I would do them as a warm-up exercise. So I would do sets of like 15 pull-ups. <laughs> I just, you know, it's like I, I, you know, I look at that, I look at that chin-up bar now, you know, where you know I'm doing like sets of five with my body weight, and I'm just thinking, man, I used to bang out 15 with a <laughs> with a with a pronated grip as a warm-up. What was I thinking? How did I not know that I was like doing the best muscle building exercise I could do for my upper body? Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. So, so what's your training philosophies like now? I mean, what do you have any kind of core uh, thing like? What's your like a oh, typical week in the gym? Uh, you know, stuff like that. Does does life pull you away from the gym more than you want, or, or do you have any kind of goals or uh, you know specific to the to the weights or? 
Well, I've been fighting off a series of injuries for the past two years. I hit my like absolute peak strength maybe uh, maybe three years ago. Um, set some personal records with dumbbell exercises, and and uh, uh, I was like as strong as as I'd ever been, you know, in in a in a functional way. And you know, not on the power lifts, but you know, my age with you know all the all the funky joint mechanics, you know, the power lifts were never going to happen anyway. Um, and things just started to break down, a shoulder injury, a knee injury, a, a, a hernia. So I've spent most of the last two years focused on, on mobility, core strength, and, and functional movement. I haven't, I, I don't think I've, you know, deadlifted anything hundred, heavier than 225. I, I don't do anything with a barbell for the upper body. Uh, you know, it's all dumbbells and, and, uh, you know, some cable stuff. And it's, it's all, I, I just, I just want to feel good again and play sports and, which of course is the original reason I got into it. And this year I'm playing baseball for the first time since I was 12. So there's like that 40 year gap in between seasons. And, um, you know, I can, I can tell, you know, I'm not, I'm not getting hurt out there, getting sore, but not getting hurt. So I can tell that, uh, whatever I did work. So sacrifice probably, <laughs> probably 10 pounds of muscle mass and, and who knows how much strength, but, uh, I feel good for the first time in like three years. So that's, that's something. Yeah, that's gotta count for something. It's huge, yeah. yeah. All right, man. Well, well, I don't know if that counts as a philosophy, but, uh, but it's, but it's what I've done. And I also coach my daughter's soccer team. So, you know, and, and play golf when I can. So, being able to get out there and play sports, uh, you know, it's a lot easier when you're when you're lighter and you've got the mobility, and uh, you know, every every quick step doesn't hurt something. You know, when you when you do that stuff pain free, it's it, it's a lot more fun. Yep, two surgeries for me in the last couple of years. You know, it's a similar kind of thing. You know, I I, I train a little lighter and. Uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe just weighing a little less and being able to feel a little bit more mobile is there's something to be said for that. I mean, you've got to start taking care of yourself at some point, you know. Sure, and I say that nobody at 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 my age, there's nothing there's nothing left to prove. I'm I'm not a uh, I'm not an athlete. I'm just somebody who in, who enjoys playing sports. I originally got into this so I could be better at sports. Um, the 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 strength was always gratifying and putting on a little, you know, putting on a little muscle mass, being a little, you know, being in slightly better shape, especially as I got into my 40s and early 50s, being in better shape than other guys my age was always a little bit, you know, there, there's a little bit of an ego boost there. Uh, but the main thing is, what's the point of doing this if you can't feel substantially better? You know, if you can't pop out of a chair without having to do the double groan. <laughs> I, th- I think that's Phil's philosophy, also coincidentally. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> I do the quadruple groan, and I'm half your age. So <laughs> then Charles, Charles has to die for Phil and like wrap him in an ace bandage, pull him back together, <laughs> strong enough to hurt himself. That's like that's like the human version of of rings on a tree is how many groans to get out of the chair. You know, that's 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 how fast you're aging. That was good. <laughs> All right. Well, let's. Uh, Phil, let's let's cue up the uh, the topic of the day. This is the front. This is our fight. We 
All right. Uh, what we're going to do now, Lou, and I, I'm glad that you're around because you're really a, a great person to talk to about this, is web and media changes in how people see bodybuilding. And part of my reason for this was not only do we have uh, not one but two journalists that have worked for some big magazines here in the group, but that uh, there have been some changes. And I saw a conference down in New Orleans when uh, and Lou was there too uh, at the ISSN meeting, and they were talking about the way people used to see bodybuilding from its early roots at the turn of the, the last century or even before. And... Um, I see some changes online in particular. Uh, I haven't looked at a lot of hardback uh, or rather paperback types of uh, print media for bodybuilding in the last few years. But I just wanted to get everybody's opinion on how bodybuilding might have changed, how the media presents it and how people perceive it. Does anybody want to start? Guess not. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I, uh, all right. Here's 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 how many of you guys knew this. I just, I just read this <clears throat> in uh, in in today's paper, and and I guess if people aren't uh, aren't hearing this podcast today, this is you know Michael Jackson died yesterday, right? <clears throat> I saw in uh, <clears throat> sorry about the throat thing. I I saw in in one of the articles I read online today. Do you know who Michael Jackson's personal trainer was? I, I do indeed. No, I don't. Lou Ferrigno. Really? Really? Now I ask you, why in the world? <laughs> and this and this gets to the perception of what bodybuilding is. Uh, perhaps it gets to the perception of what bodybuilding is nowadays. Why in the world would somebody who weighs uh, 105 pounds <laughs> and is getting in shape to go out there and do two-hour essentially endurance workouts, singing and dancing on a huge stage? Uh, in front of big audiences, which, you know, it's incredibly stressful. Why would you go to a bodybuilder for that kind of training? <laughs> Why wouldn't you go to somebody who specializes in, in training athletes for endurance events that last two hours? Why wouldn't you go to Bruce Springsteen's trainer for that matter? Yeah, it's not, it's not like, uh, Michael Jackson was, uh, didn't have a choice of who he wanted to go to. You know yeah, what? I mean, you, you, I, I, yeah, he, he could have, he could have gone to anybody in the world. And let's face it, if the guy had any desire to bulk up, I think we would have seen a sign of that before the age of 50. Uh, <laughs> so I, I look at that and I say, so I'm not sure who that's more demeaning to, either to Michael Jackson for having no idea what kind of trainer he needed for <laughs> for the tour he was planning to go on, or if that says something about how low bodybuilders have gone to where it's like, you know, this is, I mean, I'm sure he offered him a lot of money, but let's face it, any trainer in the world would have taken Jackson's money to get him in shape for the tour. So uh, I, I look at that and I say, so either bodybuilding is a com is so completely off the radar or it's so completely ubiquitous that the idea is that somebody who's an expert in bodybuilding must be an expert in every kind of training. And I'm not sure what exactly to infer from that. He may have just been more comfortable with Frigno because, you know, you know, I, I maybe just that you know their personalities meshed, or I mean, everyone knows Fregno's a smart guy, and you know maybe it's because he was a fellow celebrity. Who knows? But um, maybe there's this idea out there that bodybuilding is so ubiquitous that anybody who knows how to build muscle knows how to improve any aspect of of physical function. I, yeah. I think I think you're probably right about that. I think that's a probably is is the misconception. I did hear, and I don't know if it's true, that they were friends. So if that was the case, 
that might be the only rational reason to hire Lou Ferrigno. Um, sure. But, yeah, that would make but, sense. Yeah, but uh, I, I do think you're right. I think there is this perception that if you're a successful bodybuilder, then uh, you're qualified to train anyone for any type of physical, uh, you know, uh, improvement. Oh, and, and without question, people, especially young trainers, tend to believe the fact that if you're somehow a top amateur or a professional bodybuilder, bodybuilder, that you know your your advice and your tips are supersede anybody else's that hasn't achieved that kind of level of success in bodybuilding. It's 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 asinine, really. You know, it's kind I of funny. It makes it makes me think of all the older rock stars and pop stars that are out there still going like crazy. And I think of people like uh, Mick Jagger and I think of uh, the Aerosmith guys and I see Robert Plant out there and I see Alice Cooper out there and uh, Ted Nugent. Uh, he should have hired one of those guys. Yeah. Yeah, somebody who has some kind of familiarity. Uh, one of the things that I think it was interesting what Lou just said was about the ubiquitousness of uh, of bodybuilding because – on one side, it's it's competitive bodybuilding is this insular subculture with values that most people have no interest in, really, <laughs> like you know a positive outlook on being grotesque or or something like that. But but then there's the other side that maybe it is ubiquitous because it's morphed into something different. And I guess that's where I was going with this topic a little is is to me with a lot of the online stuff. Uh, even bodybuilding websites, what you're seeing is people who, uh, when I used to compete, I would call cross trainers. I mean, they do all kinds of stuff uh, other than just building tons and tons of muscle mass. So I don't know. I don't I just don't know where the media has gone with that as far as the print media goes. But online, it feels like there's been that change, that evolution over the past few years, even on a website like. Uh, tmuscle.com, which was, you know, uh, T Nation and, and, and tmag.com back in its inception. There's been sort of a, a, a difference in the kinds of posts that you see on sites like that. Well, certainly, I think within the realm of people who are fans of muscle and bodybuilding, it, it, I mean, without question in my mind, the, I mean, the golden years as far as reaching a mainstream and having young young guys and so forth want to actually pursue that was like, you know, the 80s and early 90s. And I've written before about how I think that the Internet has kind of blown the lid off, you know, the, <laughs> I hate to say this, but a large part of the joke that is bodybuilding. And, I mean, I, I love bodybuilding, but if you go on any of the, you know, uh, bodybuilding message boards today, you, you see so often young People just just um, who love the sport, but knowing things that you know, like you and me, Lonnie, when we were young, we we never knew the realities of what was going on. So it's it's kind of made it a little um, a little you know a buffoonery of what's going on at the top levels, and even within the sport, it was it, we used to look at a lot of these guys and, and idolize them. But it seems like a lot of the fans today are actually you know. Um, take pot shots at them and stuff because because of blowing the lid off the realities of what's happening. Yeah, they they kind of they're entertained by who's in the top 6 in the Mr. Olympia for example, but being entertained by someone in sort of a a, a clown sort of way is it the way that I used to look at the people in the front of magazines and kind of aspire, you know, and and want to be like that. The the people you were aspiring to though, Lonnie didn't look like clowns so much. 
No, that's <laughs> you know, they weren't just, you know, madly huge. That's you know, it was they were sure they were on stuff and uh they had very you know, huge physiques and but but it was still to the point that people could kind of recognize with it and say, hey, maybe I can attain that. And it's way well, and past was, and, that now. And, and there was also each guy had a had a unique look, mm-hmm. and, and I think I I I wasn't really following bodybuilding at the time. It's just picking this up in retrospect. But I mean, you could honestly have a debate about you know whether the Frank Zane physique versus the Franco Colombo physique, you know, was you know who who should have won that? Which is the more you know, which is the physique you want to have? Who's the better bodybuilder? And there's no right answer to the question, but at least it was an interesting question. Whereas when you've got, you know, a dozen slabs of, you know, 280-pound beef out there, what, what, how, how do you choose among that? How do you, what's a, what's a distinctive physique nowadays? I mean, aren't they all kind of huge in the same huge, same way? It's almost as if, if you pack enough mass. Look to, uh, a lot of the competitive physiques today, and Lonnie and I talk about this a lot, actually. Um, you're saying, I mean, even though people might rip on the, you know, aesthetics of a guy like Platts, for instance, versus somebody like Haney, at least like you said, um, there was individuality to the physiques. Um, today it just seems like, you know, if you've got the right set of genetics and the access to the stuff, you blow up, sure, and you get huge, but you don't look that much different from the guy beside you. Um, and it seems to be kind of a trend. I don't know. Especially when the GH bellies start coming into play, it, it makes everybody look that much similar in, a, in another way still. You know, there's enough mass on everybody that the weaknesses are kind of all hidden by dozens of pounds of mass and, and the GH belly sticking out there. And it, it, like you said, Rob, it is kind of assembly line, you know, take these drugs, do this, this and this, and, and everybody kind of comes out the same. Boy, I wonder how many, I wonder how many of you guys, myself included, can remember the first time you ever cracked open a bodybuilding magazine. You know, just the do. first time, your, your very first exposure where you look at like, you know, depending on when that happened in your life, but you look at like a, a, a Lee Haney or somebody like that and you're just like, what the heck? Like, if you've never seen a physique like that, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just the most mind-boggling thing. And uh, it is an interesting question as to, you know, what is the appeal of that? And I don't know if it's as simple as just that, uh, you know, everyone wants to have significance in life, and, and maybe that's just a, a physical metaphor for that. But uh, but I can remember the first time I ever cracked open a, uh, a muscle magazine, and uh, it's just, you know, your initial reaction is is literal disbelief. You just can't even believe that, that a human being can look like that. I always look at it like superheroes, you know. It seemed like a superhero. The first one I ever saw was the short-lived Canadian pro, Nimrod King. I don't know if you, any of you remember him. And uh, he was just taking tickets at a local here Toronto bodybuilding contest. I think he was just winning his pro card. And uh, my God, I mean, I was only about 15, 16 years old. And I mean, I I just stood and stared at that man for about 20 minutes just with my mouth agape. I, I, I couldn't believe it. But it's interesting how now, I mean, I'm sure all of you are the same way, you just become so desensitized to it that it takes pretty much a Ronnie Coleman to even make me look twice, you know? That's interesting you said that. There was a picture of Ronnie Coleman that they were offering down at the ISSN meeting, and um, it was a back shot. And, I mean, 
it looked like livestock in, in some nebulous way. It was just grotesque, you know. And like you said, I, it's maybe people are desensitized. Is that what it takes? Because to me, um, it's like an era lost because I don't – bodybuilding has become something that even I – uh, after 25 years of wanting it, don't really want to look like someone on the cover of one of those magazines, you know? Well, I mean, every every major urban center now has, you know, a, a few dozen guys who, you know, are twice as big as Frank Zane. And any large urban center gym now has a guy who's easily, you know, could have been considered a freak 20 years ago, but now is just considered a guy that's just a little bit jacked. So. Yeah, and I think, like I said, I think, you know, the whole thing about the Internet blowing the lid off, the whole secret that is bodybuilding and the behind-the-scenes thing, I think it's I think it's gone a long way to um, destroying um, the desire in a lot of young guys to actually pursue that um, and go, like Lonnie was saying earlier, to the, the route of the kind of the cross-trainer type thing. You see a lot of that in gyms today. I mean, used to go into what would be considered 20 years ago a bodybuilding gym, and those same gyms now are, you know, the, the bodybuilder, quote-unquote, is, is few and far between. There's more guys doing CrossFit and, you know, training specifically for a sport or mixed martial arts or any of that type of thing. So, yeah. Well, And, and I also think that the the issue of steroids in sports has really changed. I mean, I, I can remember in 1998 kind of, um, laughing at the absurdity of people thinking that that McGuire and Sosa were not taking steroids, and you would you know get on the the you know message boards and you'd hear the people arguing saying you know well my cousin's best friend put on fifty pounds of mass just using creatine and protein and he's bigger than McGuire and so you know McGuire was always he always hit home runs yeah but he didn't hit him nine hundred feet you know <laughs> he didn't he didn't hit him when he was off balance falling down and swinging with one arm. And yet there was this there was this kind of willful blindness to the difference between what people can achieve with strength training and what they could only achieve with the with the anabolic assistance. And I think once those blinders came off and people realized how ubiquitous steroids are, um, I think that there was there you know a lot of the appeal of bodybuilding kind of went out the window. You know you. you sh- this idea you know admiring these guys for spending two hours in the gym. It's like. You know, well, okay, but without the steroids, there's no way that a ball player like Barry Bonds could be working out two hours a day. I mean, a 162-game schedule would be killing him. He wouldn't be able to train like that. Uh, so when you, when you sort of break, off, break away from the mythology that this is all because of hard work, and you start thinking and realizing how much the, uh, the chemicals aided and abetted that fanatical training, then all of a sudden it, I think it becomes a lot less appealing, a lot less motivating, and maybe there's people's aspirations now uh, are kind of are kind of downsized. I think people I think people still want to be fit, uh, probably in the same numbers they as you know as ever at least since the big fitness boom in the starting in the late 70s. Uh, I just think that the size aspirations have changed dramatically because people understand what they need to do to get to that size. So the so the fantasy part of it is is gone. Yep, the quest, the quest for size is over. That's the problem. Kevin Lavroni, and, you know, he retired from bodybuilding several years ago, and, he, you know, he immediately drops, like, 50, 60 pounds of muscle. And granted, a lot of people say he just stopped training, period. 
eating properly, but I mean, still, I mean, that kind of weight loss. And then just recently kind of, you know, back on the comeback trail thing, you know, here's my pictures of me, you know, after not training for five years and here I, here's my two weeks in my photo from, I'm back in training for two weeks. And you look at his photo and he's already, you know, miles beyond what the average guy does in 10 years of training. I mean, you know, it, it's, makes very, you know, young people very despondent because they, they do under the, understand the realities of what's going on there. And like you say, if they're not willing to do that and or they don't have access to it or and or they don't have the genetic capacity for that, um, why bother? You know, and it becomes almost like a a ridiculing thing because, you know, I can't have it or I don't want it or I don't have the means to, to go about getting it. Um, so it becomes, like you say, a, a more of a... A presentation of clowns rather than like something that you are desiring for yourself. Yeah, and 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 the clown metaphor is a good one because you you know it it becomes a getting getting jacked becomes a circus trick as opposed to something that you do through you know through it, it was almost a heroic thing in the seventies and eighties uh, when you when you saw these these big muscular bodies on the movie screen for the first time. You, you know they they were they were always the action heroes they were rocky and they were terminator and and you could look at you could look at those guys and you could feel that this process of getting in the gym and having that kind of dedication and building that kind of body there was something that was that was really admirable about it and really aspirational and after that once we once we you know got wise to the realities of of the steroid culture um, it, it became like a, a physiological card trick. You know, it became, it became, you know, it, it became juggling. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting that that person was able to do that, but it's not something I really aspire to do because I have no desire to go to clown school. Yeah. Clown school, wow. Yeah, but it's true. It's true. Yeah, you know, it's not, it's not something that, that people look at anymore. I, I don't want to say people like all people, you know, I mean, they, no matter what trend there is, it's not like everybody's invested in it. And when a trend ends, it's not like everybody quits doing it. I mean, there's still plenty of guys out there, you know, taking juice and getting jacked and lots of people who are still trying to get to their natural genetic limits and don't really care that they're not going to get as big as the guy on steroids. And I admire those guys. Uh, but I, I think that there's... Um, somebody, meant, somebody brought up training for mixed martial arts. I, I think guys when they look for that kind of physical challenge it's not the physical challenge is no longer what i can achieve inside the gym uh and and how i can pose afterwards it becomes what can i do with this training that you know if if i'm going to spend all this time in the gym what can i do with this well yeah the the, the functionality of it and it's interesting because uh this past week i've a friend actually lent me a lot of like you know that ufc's hardest knockouts and stuff a bunch of dvds and i've Watched several hours this past week of these DVDs I was I was lent, and it really is remarkable just that just, just the you know the, <laughs> the the use of the drugs even the UFC and so forth. And I I mean I don't think that's anybody who knows anything about this know, can look at these physiques and know that there's no way you know most of these guys are getting into that kind of shape, especially the guys in the higher weight classes. I mean you know that kind of training I'm sure most people you know know what. It, it, the martial art training itself, it's hard to keep weight on, certainly mixed martial arts type stuff when you're doing lots of groundwork. And these guys got physiques that it's just like, there's no way. I mean, there's no way that guy's natural. I think it's the technology. It's it's worth for young guys listening in that just just because you start taking 
gas. You know, you start using testosterone or whatever you can get your hands on. I mean, aside from the, the legal risks associated with that, that alone does not make you look uh, incredible. I mean, it, it's it's worth pointing out. There still is some work involved, but unfortunately, I think that's one of the things that's changed over the last decade or so, maybe even a little more, is the technology with the growth factors, you know, growth hormone, IGF-1, uh, mixed with insulin and a huge escalating doses of of androgens, uh, specialty designer steroids, all of these kinds of things have added up to basically equal what you see on you know the covers of magazines where everyone is a mass freak. That quest for size is kind of over. I mean, guys can get so big as soon as they hit a pose, you know, they cramp up and they have to be hauled off stage because of electrolyte imbalances and they have so much muscle mass and and somebody somebody used the word heroism. Yeah, where's the heroism in in that? In in being as big as a beanbag chair and being hauled off the stage completely ineffectual. You know, a little girl could walk up and and kick your ass. <laughs> well, well, I think that's a small number of guys who are who are cramping up, right? <laughs> I want well, to play I mean, kind of devil's advocate for a minute. Um, and kind of head the other way on this. I mean, this is definitely a topic I've had come up recently with with some people. And uh, you know, I think it's also hurting people in in a negative way. Um, I agree with everything that's been said, but I almost think um, it has stopped people from even trying to a point, and they're starting to accept mediocrity instead of actually striving and finding out what they can do. Because God knows there were people doing amazing things before all this stuff. I mean, there were yeah. amazing athletes, amazingly strong people. I mean, look at Paul Andersons and stuff like that, and people. Now they've they've gone the other way and they're accepting mediocrity and just hey look it's excellent be average bullshit you know just because you're not going to do gas doesn't mean you can't try hard and you can't specialize in one thing and shoot to do your best and still become incredibly good right gas is not a free ticket either the truest sense I think the strongest athletes in the iron sports existed you know twenty thirty even forty years ago without question um, you know if you take away the the huge amounts of drugs and the, you know, on the, the equipment, support gear, and you take all that stuff away from it. I, I don't think the guys today, uh, most of the guys today, would measure up very well at all to the champions 30, 40 years ago. I really don't. Oh, and that's the problem. And now people just—it's gone to the point where, well, I can't do that without help. No, yeah, you can. You know, people just don't want to put in the work. They want everything right now. It's—it's it's an odd society we have. We have people that you know. They got ADD and they'll go pop a pill, but then they're against steroid use. You know, they want the quick fix, but then they don't. Well, let's be honest, though. Yeah, they. But but still, I mean, you can't put in, you can't work harder and longer and be shredded at 250. Most people can't do that. I mean, it, it is worth pointing that out. But you're right, you can't be a defeatist. You cannot be a defeatist in that either. You've got to believe that you can be awesome. And you can be awesome. People can be awesome. You don't have to use drugs. No, that's a good point, Phil. Well, does anybody have anything else? Well, I mean, this conversation can go on and on. I mean, there's yeah. a million things to say, but I, th I think the salient points have been made, yeah. Well, I, we got one, one kind of comment question here that uh, Gus from Kansas City um, just wants Everybody, to kind of comment on this, uh, your thoughts. Um, it seems that the covers of muscle, muscle and fitness and such over the past years 
have less steroid huge Coleman types, and instead they're moving to uh, UFC fighters, MMA fighters, Bruce Lee, Wolverine type guys. Um, well, I mean, I don't think people really understand the huge impact that whole MMA kind of culture has infiltrated. I mean, I'm very much into heavy metal music, and a recent cover of a recent uh, kind of mainstream heavy metal uh, magazine recently had actually um, a couple MMA guys on the front cover of, the, of that trying to do the tie-in with, with heavy metal with the MMA thing because that's such an appeal. So, I mean, yeah, that, that that's selling, selling everything these days. I mean, that seems to be what all the young guys are into. I mean, you walk around, you can't, I don't know what it's like down there, but, I mean, you can't walk around anywhere in Toronto without seeing somebody with a tap-out shirt on. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I do think, I, you know, the muscle and fitness cover thing, my understanding from sources that I have out there are telling me that muscle and fitness is making a conscious effort to kind of be more relatable by presenting athletes in particular and also celebrities with good physiques and things. But, but you'll see a lot of athletes on the cover. And uh, so, uh, you know, that that's just another sign that the whole bodybuilding thing is uh, becoming less and less relatable, I think. Yeah. I actually wonder if bodybuilding has – there's going to be some people actually absolutely freak about this, but has it gone as far as it can? You know, I mean, literally, if we talk about guys being 40 pounds bigger and more strided than they are now, I, I'm not even sure someone would even be functional. I mean, even enough to even get on the stage. I, I don't know. I, at some point, the quest for size is going to be ruined by technology, and I sound like an old fart by saying that, but – I, I think there's some truth to it. I just don't know, uh, you know, how you continue with a certain level of shock value because that's what a lot of people like to watch. You know, the hardcore bodybuilding fans, they want to see the, the next batch be absolutely freaky even compared to the last batch. So how long can you do that? And, and there are finite limits, which makes you think what other avenues can it go toward, if any, you know, that that would be the next question. Well, I think, I think that's going to be... I mean, it's interesting. I think it's going to have to go the way of a lot of what training and, and sports are sort of going to, iron sports are going to now. And it's kind of, a, they're going back to the roots, at least subsets. Um, and maybe it'll go back. You know, they're going to have to kind of go backwards and start looking for that symmetry and, and whatnot again they used to have, possibly. I mean, and things like now you're getting a lot of the raw kick and power lifting. And stuff like that. I mean, because again, I mean, it's kind of the same thing as bodybuilding. How far can can supportive gear go? Another topic, but I mean, it relates. <laughs> you know, when when people are getting four hundred pounds out of suits and shirts, you know. Well, I, well, I, I know wonder. You're I, at I wonder. I wonder though. Now that you know, so much of the mystery is gone from the you know from from the from bodybuilding and powerlifting. Whether those are going to sink. You know, talk about going, you know, going retro. I think the the retro part is that they'll just slide back into into kind of the cult sports that they grew out of, mm-hmm. and the guys with the most potential for um, for strength and size and power are going to continue to gravitate toward toward football and or, or mixed martial arts or whatever whatever is going to give them the best paycheck. Yeah. You know that it's that they'll have the muscles anyway. They'll have the strength anyway. Um, but they'll, you know, but they'll get paid to get out there and play a sport. I mean, I, you have to think that a lot of those guys, uh, you know, the icons of early bodybuilding, could have been pretty good competitive athletes in any number of in any number of sports. But they chose bodybuilding. There was a, um, there, there was certainly an appeal and mystique to it. 
it, once it lost that mystery, though, I just wonder, um, you know, I, I, I wonder what the appeal is. One of the, an author we interviewed a couple weeks ago in T-Muscle asked the question, if you've got somebody who, who has the genetic propensity for the, for strength and size and, you know, how do you ask that guy or how does that guy persuade himself that it's a good idea to, you know, to dedicate the next 10, 12 years of his life to taking all these drugs and getting as huge as possible with a vague possibility of ending up one of the top 10 guys and actually being able to make a living at it? Yeah. You know, I mean, the, it, as long as, as long as the, you know, as long as the, the goal that you're striving for is so narrow and so far off, um, you have to wonder what the appeal is for the guys who might be the best at it. No, oh, yeah, and totally. I mean, even now, I mean, what? If you are number one in the world, what do you get? <laughs> you know, nothing yeah. compared to an NFL salary. I mean, you used to be in, like, Arnold's day. I mean, you were almost guaranteed movie contracts and, and such, you know. But now, meh, no, not really. You'd say because even on, even on the, the big screen in the 80s, sure. I mean, a guy like Arnold Schwarzenegger wouldn't work today. In the 80s, yeah. that was acceptable. I mean, you had the guys like Stallone and Schwarzenegger and, mm-hmm. you know, Dolph Lundgren, these kind of guys who are, you know, the muscles from Brussels, Van Damme and all that. Yeah. Now it's like you look at the action heroes and it's like freaking Matt Damon. So, you know, there's a big big physique difference between those two. Yeah. Those two. Uh, but, I mean, yeah, for sure. And I think I think it's... It's going to be true. I mean, you can look at look at Olympic lifting in this country. You know, we're we're essentially not very good, and why? Because all the best athletes are going to sports that pay them. So yeah, I think that argument right. is totally clear. Absolutely. Well, good show, guys. Yeah, that's a good place to stop. Thanks, Lou. I wanted to thank you again, everybody. Lou Schuler was our guest today and had some good comments in in the uh, the discussion as well. www uh, tmuscle.com. And Lou, you also have your own website. Can you just tell everybody that? Yeah, that's uh, louschuler.com, L-O-U-S-C-H-U-L-E-R.com. Um, one of these days I'll, I'll update my blog again. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's been two months. I've been a little busy. But uh, one, of the, one of these days I'll get, in, get back in and start updating again. Cool. Thanks a lot, Lou. Thanks a lot, Lou. Okay, thanks for having me on. I really thanks enjoyed you, it. Lou. Awesome. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to